All right, now we're ready to go. Okay, um, so for the last few weeks, we've been in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, and we've hit uh, a number of topics. We've talked about sex and relationships. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about singleness, uh, boring stuff like that, right? And I know, though, what you guys have been thinking for the last several weeks, blah, 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 sex, blah, 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 singleness, right? But when are we going to get to the good stuff, right? When are we going to talk about the stuff that is relevant to my life? Drew, I want to know, when are you going to tell me what I should do about food that has been sacrificed to idols, (laughs) right? Like when my friend comes and he slaughters a goat at the temple of Aphrodite's and then offers me some of that goat meat. Am I allowed to eat it? I want to know. Well, you are in luck tonight because I'm going to tell you, all right, that is exactly where we're at. Paul is in the middle of answering these questions that the church at Corinth has sent to him. And one of the questions that they wrestled with is that very one. What do we do about food that has been sacrificed to idols? Um, And this is kind of something that that really matters to them. Now, what we're doing tonight, actually, he talks about this for three chapters. We're just going to look at chapter 8, which is a short one, and then we're going to look at the, we're going to kind of jump over a little section and then go to his ending, because his beginning and ending connects together. He's kind of sandwiching a text here together. And so we're going to look at 8 and then the end of chapter 10. But before we do that, I just want to give you a little bit of background real quick. Um... In Corinth, or in the first century at any time, when an animal was sacrificed at a pagan temple of some kind, they did not use the entire animal. And so you would sacrifice it. Some of it would go on the altar. Some of it would be used in like temple uh, celebration rituals and banquets and stuff that were going on there. And then the rest of it, and a lot of it, would get taken to the meat market. And, and it would be sold in the meat market. That's where many people would buy their meat. It would be used in those things. And actually, probably a, a majority of the meat that was sold in markets in places like Corinth were actually from the temple. They, were, they had been sacrificed in some pagan idol ceremony. And it was impossible to know. You didn't know when you went to the market what meat had been involved in an idol sacrifice and what hadn't. And so this became a really big question is, A, are we allowed to eat that kind of meat? And if not, because that's been involved in something that seems to be very anti-Christian, if not, then should we just avoid meat altogether because there's no way to know? And, and that sounds like even that is kind of like, a, that, that can be a little bit tricky, but it actually gets even more nuanced than that because you had issues of uh, banquet halls that took place at the temple, most like social events, weddings, or like feasts that were part of trade guilds and stuff would take place in those banquet halls using some of that meat. And you had questions about what happens if I'm on the temple grounds, or what happens if I'm not in the temple grounds, or what happens if I'm with Christians, or if I'm not with Christians. There was a lot of questions about it, including should we even eat meat at all? Um, Now, this topic, I I joke around earlier, I I know this probably doesn't sound very relevant to us today, but actually the principles that Paul is going to trace through this text are some very key, very relevant principles for us today as we make decisions about things that we might consider to be kind of gray areas in the Christian life as we think through things. And so the way that he opens up, actually, the discussion even kind of sets the stage for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge... 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So, as with many things we've seen so far, the Corinthians appear to be divided on this. You have these two different groups, and there's one group who thought, listen, we should have nothing to do with anything that was close to an idol, or even something that seems to be, and so we should avoid meat altogether. And then there was a second group that said, no, no, we've got freedom in Christ, we can live how we want, and idols are no big deal anyway, it's just a piece of metal, it's just a piece of stone, and so we should be able to eat whatever we want. Now this second group is who Paul seems to be quoting. (laughs) What just happened behind me? Um, This second group is who Paul seems to be quoting when he says, we know that we all have knowledge. That's not Paul's own words. If you look there, it's in quotations. That's because we believe that he is actually quoting this group. That this, there's this second group who goes, listen, we know the deal here. We get it. Idols aren't any big deal. And so we know that we're free to do these things. And Paul says, yes, I get what you're saying. And Paul actually will agree with their position. He, he agrees with the second group that idols are no big deal and there should be freedom to eat these things. But, he says, they might be missing something. He disagrees with the way that they've worked that position out. Knowledge is a very important thing in the Bible. Knowing what is true, knowing what is right, but there's a kind of knowledge that makes me arrogant more than it makes me helpful. That makes me prideful more than it makes me loving. Actually, you guys uh, sit on a campus where knowledge can be a very big thing in the realm of academia, and you've been able to see probably, I'm sure, where knowledge sometimes makes people more arrogant than it does helpful, more arrogant than it does kind. So that's Paul's concern in this issue. Here's what he says in verse 4. About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, All things are through him, and we exist through him. So here we see Paul's first statement, and it seems to justify eating this kind of food. Because Paul says just what the second group is saying. Listen, idols aren't anything. An idol is nothing because there is only one God. Yes, Paul says, there are all kinds of, in quotations, gods. There are all kinds of so-called gods. There's Zeus, and there's Aphrodite, and there's Asclepius, and there's all these lords of different mystery cults, which were a really big thing in the first century. But Paul says, but none of them are real. None of them are real gods. And there's only one God, and there aren't multiple expressions of those gods. There aren't different levels of him. There's only one, which means that idol that somebody sacrificed to was just a piece of metal and nothing more. Now, look what he says in verse 6 again. He says this, that there is only one God from whom we are. What does he say? There is only one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. Hold on to that. Because that's going to play kind of a big role in how Paul tackles a lot of stuff in just a little bit. But he seems to kind of say here that you can eat whatever you want because idols aren't any big deal. And yet, there's a qualifying statement. In verse 7, however, not everyone has this knowledge. Not everyone knows that an idol is nothing. 
Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat it, and we are not better if we do eat it. There were some people, Christians, who were so used to eating meat in the context of idol worship. That had been their main experience, so that the two things had become kind of tied together, and they did not have the ability to untangle them. Particularly if you were in the like lower classes, which the majority of people in the first century were, if you were lower class, probably the only time you ever ate meat was in some sort of idol worship ceremony, in some sort of feast at a pagan temple, because you weren't going to just go and buy that for yourself at the market. And so for some people, meat was only something that was practiced or done in the context of idolatry. So eating it for these people felt like they were going back to their past life, felt like they were going back to their old selves, one of pagan idol worship, which was tied up with a lot of other things, sexual sin and a lot of practices that they would not be proud of. And so when they begin to, if as a Christian, when they start to try, try that on, that eating meat in that context, it starts to feel like they're getting pulled back and they start to feel guilty about those things. So here's what Paul says in verse 9. So be careful that this right of yours, this right to eat this meat, in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge." Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Now, he talks about someone who has a weak conscience. He's using this word a little different than we might. When we talk about somebody with a weak conscience, we would probably mean somebody who does bad things and they don't feel guilty about it because their conscience isn't strong enough. That's, that's not what Paul is actually meaning here. By weak, he means like sensitive. Someone who has a sensitive, maybe even overly sensitive conscience. They're, they're feeling bad about something that they don't necessarily need to feel bad about. And, and here's where this gets weird. Paul says that eating food that has been sacrificed to an idol is not inherently bad. It's neutral. It's no big deal. But if you think it's bad and you go ahead and do it anyway, Paul says that is sinful. He actually clarifies this in Romans 14, and he talks about this. And the reason why is because if I think something is against God, that God doesn't want me to do it, but I go, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Paul says whether the thing was bad or not, there's something wrong about that kind of mindset. There's something wrong in your heart that says, I think God doesn't want me to, but I don't care, and I'm going to do it. And so Paul says some of these people were being led into this mindset, into this practice by others who were eating the meat. And so the knowledge of the second group was leading the first group towards sin. Now, verses 11, 12, I think are really key motivations for how we ought to interact with anyone who is a fellow believer. Paul says that Our brothers and sisters in Christ, that Jesus identifies himself so closely with them that when you sin against someone who belongs to him, when you sin against your brother or sister, you are sinning against Jesus. 
And that's a big deal. This is why Paul will say that he is willing to give up any right of his. That if, if causing that causes, or if eating meat causes my brothers and sisters to stumble, I'll be vegetarian, Paul says. I'll give up meat for the rest of my life. And if you go into chapter 9, he's just going to start listing all the things that he has given up or is willing to give up for the sake of the church and for the sake of Jesus. He'll, he'll line that out all through 9. And then in the beginning of chapter 10, he starts talking about what real idol worship is and how Christians ought to avoid that at all costs. And then he comes back around in verse 23 to this topic that we're talking through here. So go to 10, chapter 10, verse 23. There he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Now, if verse 23 sounds vaguely familiar to you, that's because this is a word-for-word quote from chapter 6, verse 12. When the people there in Corinth, this is a Corinthian slogan, everything is permissible. I am free to do anything I want in Christ. And they were using that as an excuse to engage in sexual sin. And Paul says, listen, everything may be somewhat permissible. I don't know if it is according to your standards, but let's just say it. But he says, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is able to build up. And so he quotes them, and then he kind of responds to that quote. He says, yeah, it may be okay to eat this, but what if the question for Christians is not, what am I allowed to do? What are my rights But instead, how does this affect others? He goes on in verse 25 to say, Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. So Paul says it's totally okay to eat anything that you buy in the market. You might not know if it was involved in a temple sacrifice. You don't have to know. It's okay because, he quotes Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, every animal, every piece of meat on the planet, that belongs to God. And so we can be thankful to him for those things. In chapter 8, he's talking, what we read in chapter 8 has to do more with eating in the presence of like weak believers, those who are led into sin. Here he's talking about eating with unbelievers, people who, who are not a part of the church. And he says, it's, it's not going to be a big deal to them, and it doesn't need to be a big deal to you either. But then he does kind of jump in again with the qualification. But if someone says to you, verse 28, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So he says, if you're sitting there eating at an unbeliever's home and that person says to you, hey, by the way, this is actually sacrificed to an idol. He says, actually, at that point, then you step back and say, I don't think I'm going to do this. Or if maybe it's a a fellow Christian who's with you and they're nervous about it and they bring it up and they go, hey, this is actually idle food. I think we need to stay away from this. Then Paul says, you step away from it. You step back from this because Paul says we don't want anyone to be confused about where your allegiance or your loyalties lie. He closes with this, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. This is actually Paul's kind of summary on how you live every part of your life. 
Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So this is, that last little section is kind of his summary of chapters 8 through 10. Hey, whatever you do, however you go about this, think this thought in your mind, is what I'm going to do going to bring glory to God? Am I acting in a way that will honor him? And again, Paul says that's actually how you think of everything. And secondly, he says, is this something that helps lead to the salvation of others or does it hinder it? This is how you ought to think when it comes to the way you eat and drink with the food in the market. But here is the big question that you may be wondering all the way through. What does any of this have to do with us? Cool. That's, that's great to know, Drew. I'll know the next time somebody offers me a goat that was slaughtered at the Temple of Asclepius that I can eat it as long as they don't announce it too loudly. Right? But what the heck does this have to do with any other part of my life? That's what we're going to talk about on the other side of the break. Take a couple minutes, stretch your legs, and then we'll get back to it. It is a cool autumn day. Hello. In 1997, Scott, always making things awkward, man. In 1997, and my brother Lane is walking the campus of Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. Now, he is not a college student. He's only 13 at the time. But uh, he's there for this little conference called the Junior High Getaway. He's there with our church youth group. And he's walking around with a couple buddies around the campus. And they're standing up at the top of this hill next to a couple dorms. And down at the bottom of the hill is the campus dining hall, the main kind of dining area, cafeteria thing. And, and they're looking down there. And about 8 to 10 feet out in front of the dining hall is this trash came. So one of them, as they're standing there, asks this question, hey, I wonder if we could hit that trash can with a rock from up here. That's a good question. Let's, let's find out. And so they start this little competition to see who from the top of the hill can hit the trash can with a rock. Now, it is a good question, and it created a lot of fun for them, but it was the wrong question to ask. The better question to ask would have been, what happens if one of us overshoots this trash can and hits the dining hall? Because the dining hall, at least that side of the dining hall at this particular time, was floor-to-ceiling windows, okay? Just glass from top to bottom, left to right, all the way across, right? And, and that would have been the better question to ask. They don't ask that question, though. They just start chucking rocks, right? And they're, they're trying, and they're getting close, and they're shooting at it, and then all of a sudden it happens, which you knew was going to happen. Somebody overshoots it, and, and it goes right past, and it hits the concrete and starts kind of bouncing. And Lane, like, said they knew it in that moment. They could see what was happening. It starts skipping towards the windows there, and all of a sudden just, chunk, just punches right through one of the windows down at the bottom. And they're like, oh gosh, we just put a hole in this window. But they were wrong. They did not just put a hole in that window. Because two seconds after that rock went through, the entire window just went, just down to the ground. 
And they're like, oh, crap. And then all of a sudden, and I, don't, I don't know if this next part is true or not. This is the way Elaine describes it. This guy, just this man just came flying out of the window, okay, the shattered window. This guy just comes out full sprint out of the window, and he's got them in his sights, and is just charging up the hill after them, right? And they all try to scatter and get away, but this guy had some, like, superhuman strength because he was going up a hill and still caught them, right? And so brought all of them in, my brothers and his friends, he takes them to the youth ministry, and then they go to, they got to go to like the campus like administration or whatever and sort all this stuff out. The problem with my brother Lane, and he's a really great guy, but the problem with my brother Lane is that he only ever asks one question when making decisions, and it's usually the wrong one. It's usually things I should say, this is past tense, used to do this, sometimes still today. It's usually questions like, wouldn't it be cool if I, whatever, or I wonder if it's possible to whatever, when he should be thinking things like, should I, whatever, would that be a good idea to do X or Y? Actually, it's not just lame. I want to submit to you that perhaps the biggest problem with most people's decision making is that they only ever ask one question. And it's usually the wrong question. Or or maybe it's an okay question, but they should have asked more alongside of it. Most people, when they make decisions about what they're going to do, little or small in their life, the primary question that gets asked is, what do I want? Or what will make me happy? Actually, this question is so Um, so huge in our culture today that I think actually most people don't even ask it. It's just kind of assumed. They don't pause to ask what will make me happy. We just do what will make us happy. We just do what we want to do in that moment. And, And sometimes people actually add to this question, do I have the right to do this? Like, is this something that is legal for me to do? Is this something that is okay for me to do? Which is a good question to ask. And all of this sounds really good in theory. If all of us were to live this way, just do what makes you happy. And if you do what makes you happy, and I do what makes me happy, and we kind of stay out of each other's way, there's no reason for you to tell me how I should live my life if I'm making myself happy. And there's no reason for me to tell you how you should live your life as long as I'm staying within my rights and doing the things that are okay for me to do, and I feel good about that. It, it, in theory, sounds like this should make for a pretty good world. But there's a couple false assumptions underneath that kind of thinking, underneath that kind of questioning. The first false assumption is this. It assumes that we are isolated individuals and not interconnected human beings. It assumes that when I make decisions about what's going to make me happy, that that has no effects on other people around me. When the truth is, intentional or not, the things I choose to do for myself affects other people around me. The second assumption that I think is false is this. That idea assumes that I was made to live for myself. That I was designed to do what what puts me at the middle and that doing that is what will make me happy. But actually, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary that indicates actually, and you don't even have to be a Christian to believe this. You can just look around and see that most of the people who live for themselves, who live with their primary goal being personal personal happiness, most of those people are unhappy. 
These are the kinds of questions that the Corinthians are asking when they talk about food sacrifice to idols. Do I want to do this? And do I have a right to do this? Is it okay? What Paul wants to come to them and say is maybe there are bigger questions that need to be asked in this moment. He says in chapter 10, verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Maybe there are other questions, something bigger than what do I want and do I have a right to do it? Tonight, I want to give you a different perspective on what it means as a follower of Jesus to make decisions about your life, big and small. I want to give you three questions for thinking about uh, what we should do and how we do that. I want to give you three questions to ask anytime you try to make a decision that comes specifically from this text, plus actually a bonus question that's not from this text, but I think is also important. So here they are. The first question I ask anytime I come to something, whether it's food sacrifice to idols or anything else, is I ask this question, what does Jesus say? And when I say, what does Jesus say? I don't mean, is there a specific quote from him in like the Gospels or something? But what does his word say? Because we believe that all of this is his, that all of this is inspired by his own spirit. And so all of this comes from him. And this is what I want to know first. This is where Paul starts when he answers the question, can we eat food sacrificed to idols? He says, what does the Bible say? First of all, the Bible says this, that there is only one God. He gets that from Deuteronomy 6 and a number of other places. And then he also says that everything in the, in the earth is the Lord's. It all belongs to him. He gets that from Psalm 24. And this is really actually important to note because Paul's answer to this question in 1 Corinthians 8, can we eat this food, is it depends. But Paul doesn't say that about everything, does he? Like in chapter 6, he doesn't say that about sexual sin. He doesn't say, you know, for some people with a weak conscience, this stuff kind of offends them, it's hard for them, and so they shouldn't, but if you're cool with it, right? He doesn't say uh, things like this about murder. There are some people with a weak conscience who have kind of a problem with, you know, stabbing people and stuff like that. <laughs> but, you know, if... If you know better and you know that it's kind of okay for you and it doesn't bother you to do it, then do that. Just don't do it around the people who get queasy around stabbing people, you know? That's not what Paul would say. No, Paul says about these things, no, you belong to God and so you want to use your body in a way that honors him. So we always want to go first to the text and go, what does the Bible say about this? And sometimes the Bible says no. Sometimes the Bible says yes. Sometimes the Bible doesn't really give us much about this. But here is the reason Paul goes to this. Because Paul's assumption is not that I am here to live for myself. Remember what he says in chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. The fundamental assumption that Paul starts at is this, that I was made for God. I exist for Him, and if He made me for Himself, that means that actually I will find my greatest happiness as I line my life up with him. Because he knows how he made me. He knows what I was made to do. And if I line myself up with him, then actually my greatest joy can come from this. 
And that's actually to his greatest glory that I live these things. So I don't want to know, first and foremost, how do I feel about this? What would make me feel good in this moment? The first thing I want to know is what does Jesus say? However, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes a step further. And he asks this second question. Does this build my brothers and sisters up or does it bring them down? Does it build the church up or does it tear the church down? We just referenced 1023 where he says, not everything, everything's permissible, but it's not all beneficial. But look again at chapter 8, verses 9 through 12, when he says, you've got the rights to eat this food. But in verse 9, but be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food that is offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Now listen, if you read through Paul's letters, you will see this to be true. There is no one who fights for freedom in Christ like Paul does. There is no one who time and time again steps up for freedom in the Christian life like Paul does. He will say over and over again, don't let anyone judge you on religious rituals that they say you need to pay attention to in order to be saved. Don't let anyone judge you by the kind of food that you eat and let them tell you you're not a part of Jesus because of this food. Don't let anyone judge you by whether you celebrate this specific holy day or not. Those things, Paul says, do not save you. Do not make you a Christian. Jesus is what saves you. Jesus is what makes you right with God. And so you are free from all of those extra regulations. He will say that over and over again. But the question is, what is that freedom for? And here's what Paul says it's for in Galatians 5, verses 13, 14. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that is, for my own selfish desires, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Here is the truth, that Christians live a life of freedom in Christ, but that freedom includes a freedom that so few people have, which is the freedom from having to do my own thing all the time. It means I am no longer enslaved to living only for myself. I am now freed to love and serve others because Jesus did that for me. And that's why Paul is able to make the crazy statement in chapter 8, verse 13, where he's like, I'll give up meat forever if it's going to cause my brothers and sisters to stumble. I'll lay down my rights. I'm free to do that. I can live how I want to in this third question that we should ask that comes from this text is this, how does this affect my witness? Specifically, when I talk about witness, I mean that each of us as followers of Jesus are called to be speaking about Jesus and to represent Jesus in the world. That people look at us and they get a glimpse of what he's like. And so here's what Paul says in chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Paul was very aware that the gospel 
could be hard to swallow for some people. If you were here when we were walking back through chapter 1, Paul talks a lot there about the foolishness of the cross, that there are a lot of people who will never be able to get their minds around this idea of a crucified Savior, of a reigning king who gets beat up and executed by, by the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. There are a lot of people who can't stomach that. They want a king who looks bigger and stronger than that. They want somebody different. There are a lot of people who will have a hard time submitting their life to Jesus, and they're going to have a hard time swallowing. Those things are major obstacles to people following Jesus. And Paul is okay. If you read 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is totally okay with the message of the gospel being an obstacle to people. He gets that. He's not okay with his own behavior being an obstacle. He's not okay with the way he acts being a hindrance to people knowing the God who made them and loves them. He never wants the way he acts, whether it's something sinful that he's doing, his attitude or a lack of love or a lack of kindness, or even something that's not sinful but could be confused and misunderstood. He never wants that to get in the way of people seeing Jesus. That's what he wants most. And so he'll do whatever it takes. We'll read about this in chapter 9. Whatever it takes, you'll see. He'll do it for people to know Jesus, even if it means giving up basic human rights. Um, 15 years ago, 16 years ago now, whenever this team, I've mentioned to some of you that this team, there are six of us who went overseas to the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. And we went there because we felt compelled to want to go tell people that there's a God who made them and loves them and sent his son to die for them. Uh, The Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus is 99% Muslim. And so on our team, we made kind of a rule for ourselves that none of us over there, if you know the Muslim faith, you know that they have a strong uh, stance against alcohol. And so we made a uh, kind of a rule on our team. None of us is going to drink a drop while we're over there. And that's not because we just believed that it was absolutely sinful and the worst thing to do. It's because we did not want there to be any confusion We didn't want people who thought alcohol to be a terrible thing to see us doing it because we knew that would ruin our chance to tell them about Jesus. My wife, currently my, my, or back then my girlfriend, sorry, it's going to get weird. Okay, Um, she was at the time my girlfriend, fiance. We just made kind of a rule for ourselves. We would not be in a room alone together over there. We weren't going to like be in each other's dorm rooms by ourselves. And the reason why is not because it's sinful to be in a room by yourself with, your girl, with a girlfriend or boyfriend or any of those things. It's because we knew that there were actually a number of students in the college who were living in a way that was different than Christ, and we didn't want them to just lump us in with that. We wanted them to notice. We didn't want them to get any confusion about the state of our relationship. We wanted them to know that there was something different. And that very decision led to a number of conversations where people asked us those things. Why don't you do the things that all these other students are doing over here? By the way, we got to Cyprus and found out most of them didn't care about drinking at all. They weren't, uh, they weren't like the strictest Muslims, most of them. They didn't really care. But the, the goal there was to help them see something bigger. Let me give you a bonus question real quick. This one's not correct, di- directly from this text, but it's this one. Is this wise? Is this a wise decision? There's some things that might clear all three questions. The Bible's cool with it. It's not going to hurt my brothers and sisters. It's not going to hurt my witness, but it might still not be wise, like throwing rocks at a trash can in front of a glass wall. 
or um, like maybe uh, my friends asking me to go on a road trip like uh, the night before I have a big final. Is that a wrong or sinful thing to like drive for hours one way one night and then come back before my final? Not at all, but it's not very wise. And sometimes we get ourselves into trouble because we don't ask this question. In light of my past circumstances and my present situation and my future plans, is this a wise decision? Should I be doing this right now even if it's okay? Let me run you real quick now with those three questions in mind through a quick uh, test case. Uh, Take like five minutes to kind of walk through. How does a Christian view drinking? How should I think, how should you as college students think about alcohol and the issue of drinking as a Christian? Let's walk through what the Bible says on these things. Actually, let's walk through these, que- these three questions, these four questions. And the first one is, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say about this? Here's what we know. The Bible actually does not speak against drinking as though it is a sin. It does speak against drunkenness. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says that you do not get drunk because you don't want to be controlled by something outside of you. Instead, you want to be controlled by the spirit inside of you. You want to be able to live in a way that reflects Jesus. So I don't do those things. It warns, the Bible warns over and over again against debauchery, which is essentially the party lifestyle. Um, The Bible also says this, that we submit ourselves to every authority that has been placed over us, including the government, which means if the government says, I don't drink alcohol before I'm 21, then I'm going to submit to that. This is what God's word says about things. And so I want to obey those things. I want to follow those things. It also says to be careful about these things. It also says, Romans 14, if I feel guilty doing something and I do it, that's probably wrong. The second thing, though, that to ask is not just, is the Bible okay with it? Because, again, the Bible actually is not against alcohol. The Bible is not against drinking. But there is that second question, which is, is it wise? Is it wise? And so I want to ask questions like this. Have I struggled with misuse of this in the past? Do I have an addictive personality? Does alcoholism run in my family? Will this atmosphere that I'm drinking in tempt me toward a lack of self-control? These are the kinds of questions I want to ask, not because I believe that if I've got a beer in my hand that I'm doing something sinful, but I do, want to, I do want to be wise about these things. The next question, does this build up my brothers or sisters or does it bring them down? Could drinking in this situation encourage a younger person to drink illegally? Um, several years ago, we, I found out actually about a number of students in our ministry who were, who were actually getting together and sharing some drinks together and, and not the end of the world thing, but they were actually drinking with some younger students in our ministry. And to me, that was frustrating because what Paul says is that you are leading a younger brother or sister in Christ into doing something that they should not do. And when you sin against someone who When you lead someone into sin like that, someone that Jesus loves, that's like not just sinning against them, but sinning against him. That's a a big deal. And so I wanted them to be able to think more Jesus-like in these things. Another question, could drinking in this situation encourage someone who has convictions about alcohol, could could it encourage them to drink out of peer pressure? Could it tempt someone who struggles with misuse? Third question, how does this affect my witness? 
Am I drinking in a place where people are just assuming that I'm going to get drunk? Are they going to look at me if I'm at a party? Are they just going to assume that I'm doing what everyone else is doing? If you remember um, a couple weeks ago in, in church on Sunday, I talked about a friend of mine who refused to become a Christian because he said it doesn't make any difference. Christians act like everybody else. And so I, I never want to live my life in a way that other people look at me and go, you're no different than anybody else. Jesus makes no difference in your life. Even if I'm just confusing them and misleading them. I believe Jesus loves them too much for me to live in a way that would put, place an obstacle between them seeing that. I want, to, I want to operate in a way that represents him right. So could this cause me, as I'm doing this, to, to do something that will misrepresent Jesus? Could it hinder my witness? Here's, here's a weird question, and I don't know, maybe this is a dangerous one. Could it actually hinder my witness to not drink in this situation? If I'm just hanging out with a friend, and it's not like a party thing, but he just offers me a drink, could it actually hinder my witness to not? If I'm of age, and maybe, maybe that's actually helpful in that situation. I know that's kind of a dangerous one, but worth saying. Um, I, I don't, by the way, I'm not doing any of this stuff to try and hammer down on drinking or alcohol. I just want to think drinking is actually one of the, the closest parallels to food sacrifice to idols today because there tends to be two major parties on either side of this, and it's one of those things that can be a gray area. And so it's one of the most direct kind of connections, and I just want to walk you through what does it look like to kind of think biblically about these things. Here's the question, why do we bother with all of this? Why do I stop and ask a series of questions before I do any of those things? Why not just do what I want? And here's the answer. Because we know something that other people don't. We know that we exist for God and not for ourselves. We know that we have been freed from this kind of thinking that puts me at the center of the universe. And we know that this is exactly what Jesus did for us. That as the Son of God, he had infinite rights to reign in glory, to be worshipped endlessly, to never experience hardship or suffering or pain, to live forever, and yet he laid down those rights for me. He laid aside all the things that he freely deserved and could have claimed. He laid down his own life for me so that I could be free, and now I want to live that way for others. Paul says it like this at the end, imitate me, because what I'm doing when I live this way I'm imitating Jesus, and that's what he wants from us. I'll let the band make their way up here as I pray, and then we'll spend some time in worship together. Dear Father, even as I say all these things, I, I, mean, I recognize, I, I hope I'm not causing people to be paralyzed with fear or wondering and I hope that your Holy Spirit gives us all wisdom in these things. But more than that, I pray that you would give us the perspective of Paul that says, whatever, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I want to do all things to the glory of Jesus. Would you, Lord, please put that heart in us. Help us to think not just wisely, but help us to think kingdom mindset. Help us to think in a way that loves others more than myself. Help us to think about how we can build up Christ church and how we can reach out to people who don't know him, live in a way that represents Jesus well so that he will be honored, so that people will come to saving faith in him. I ask that you would give us that kind of freedom in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.